You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage for today comes from John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." What's up, guys? Good morning. How you doing? Good to see you all. We're in John 15. I hope you've turned there already. Uh, we have an incredible passage for us today. I'm excited to study it with you and get into it with you. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads and pray. God, we approach you now and we ask that you come to us now and that you would teach us and that you would bring home this truth of your word to our hearts, that we would have a vision for what life with you could be like, life in you could be like. Lord, so, uh, Father, we ask as the architect of our salvation that you would um, bless us with this truth. Jesus, as the Redeemer, the one who has saved us, we ask that you would remind us of who we are in you. And Holy Spirit, we ask as the perfecter and the one who moves to accomplish the Father and the Son's purpose, that you would accomplish their purposes in us today. And so, Lord, be with us in this time and teach us in your name. Amen. So, we've been in what is called the final discourse, which is Jesus' farewell speech, his last words to his closest friends and his disciples. So, we've been in the study the last few weeks. I don't know about you guys, but this this has been an incredible study in this farewell speech, this final speech of Jesus. He has made some incredible promises to us. So far, he's promised that we have a reunion, a family reunion that awaits for us in glory, that at the end of time, all of us who have loved Jesus together will be with Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity and glory. It's an incredible promise of family reunion. Besides that, we have a mission that he's put in our laps, that he has commissioned us to go and take into the world, and he has promised us that as we go out into that mission, as we pray in Jesus' name for the Father's glory, he will give us what we need for the mission. He will answer our prayers. And then last week, Jesus taught on uh, the Holy Spirit being sent as our comforter and our counselor so that we're not alone. We're not orphans in this world. And so we have opportunity while Jesus is absent and in heaven above, we still have opportunity to have deep relationship with him, with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And today's passage is more of a, a deeper dive into that reality, that we have fellowship with God himself. And so Jesus gives us a metaphor, an illustration for what life in him is like. And so you'll see words throughout this passage, uh, the phrase, you're in me, or abide in me, in me, in me, over and over again. If you're to sum up the Christian life, like what it means to be a Christian, that's what it means, in him, in Christ, in him, united to him. And so theologians call it the union we have with him, incorporated into him. Some say life in him, life with him. That's the phrase I'm going to use. I like that. Life in Christ, life with him. And so first Jesus gives us a metaphor to help us understand what life in him is like. Second, then Jesus teaches us what this metaphor means 
in our actual day-to-day lives, like how it plays out, what that experience of life in him is like. So first, he talks theology, then he talks experience. First, abstract, and then personal, okay? So that's where we're going to go. Verses 1 through 6 is the metaphor, 7 through 11 is the expansion of it and what it means in our day-to-day lives. So let's start with the metaphor, okay? There are symbols in this metaphor that you have to know. There's a few different people that Jesus is referring to in this teaching. Verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. So first person, first figure in this metaphor is Jesus as the true vine. And this is an incredible statement because the vine, if you know your Old Testament, has always been the nation of Israel. They have always been referred to as the vine of God. So Psalm 80, it'll be on the screen behind me, says this. You brought a vine out of Egypt, that's the Exodus. You drove out nations and planted it, this vine. You cleared the ground for it, so that's reference to the promised land, taking them out of Egypt into the promised land. Then what happens? It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So what you see here is Israel is meant to be a blessing to all the other nations. As they expand and grow, they are meant to be mediators of God's presence and his favor to all the watching world. As the world would stream into Jerusalem, Israel, as the vine of God, was to provide shade for them, bear fruit for their sake, right? Then he continues, what happens in Psalm 80? Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass by along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. So what's, what seems to be happening here or displayed here is the story of Israel. They were planted in the promised land, meant to be a mediator of God's presence to all the nations, but they disobeyed over and over and over again. So they're exiled over and over and over again. Same message is in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it, cleared, a, cleared, a, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So Israel was not who they were meant to be. They were meant to be the vine. That was the connection to, uh, for the for the world to God. They were to be a life source, a life source for the world to God, and they failed in that role. So Jesus is coming onto the scene, and he's saying, I am the true and better vine. I'm the vine that you've been waiting for. I'm the life source that you've been waiting for. Through me, by belief in me, trust in me, relationship with me, I will connect you back to the Father. I'll be the life source that you've always waited for but never had. So Jesus claims that he is the connection back to the very life of God. Second figure, as he continued in verse 1, my father is the vine dresser. So God the Father, his role in this metaphor is he's the overseer of the development and the integrity of this vine. Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Now you and I enter the story. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, Some branches, some people will bear fruit. Some people will not bear fruit and wilt and die and be cut off. And the Father knows the difference. The Father, as the vine dresser, knows the difference. He can distinguish between those who are bearing fruit and those who are not genuine. So another another helpful reference for this this teaching here is the parable of the sower, right? Remember the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13? The seed of the word of God is spread by the sower all across these different soils. The first soil, uh, the the seed falls along a path. The crows come and pick it up and eat it. Some falls along the rocky path and springs up quickly, but is scorched soon thereafter by the sun because it has no depth of soil. Some seeds fall along the thorns and the the offshoot, the, 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 the plant is choked out. So it's possible, here's what this means, It's possible to be around church and in a sense believe in Jesus to be superficially but integrated into him and in time fall away, in time drift away. Because what happens over the course of time is if you're not genuinely integrated into Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, a Christian, because of Jesus, like that's the reason why you're in it for him, that's why you're in it. 
all in time, what's going to be found out is the real reason you're in it, what's really central to your heart, what's really central to your life and to your being. And so God knows the difference, and he removes one. He removes the one that's not bearing fruit. So the question is, how does God remove? It says here, God removes the one that's not bearing fruit. How does that happen? I think what we see throughout the Gospel of John is God removes those who are not genuinely and sincerely in Christ by the threat of truth. He, Jesus, preaches truth, God reveals truth, God pushes truth towards us, and if Jesus and his word is not central to your being and something else is, then God's truth at some point in time is going to be a huge threat to what makes you happy. And it's actually going to push you away from him eventually. And so for a while there, you might hang around and you might last, but eventually it's going to be too much to bear. Eventually, it's going to get too inconvenient or uncomfortable for you. So John 5 says this, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So what we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John is if Jesus and his word are not central to your happiness, not central to your life, not central to your being, Something else is, eventually, you're not going to like Jesus, you're going to resist Jesus, you're going to kill Jesus. That's what happens to these people. The resistance, it just increases in intensity over the course of time. And so the Father knows how to distinguish who's really in him and who is not, and he cuts away those who do not bear fruit. But there are those who have Jesus and his word central to their lives, and they do bear fruit, and it's genuine. And it's evidence that there's real life, real divine life that's been infused into your being and you're connected to God through Christ, the vine. So for those branches, what happens? You can read it there in verse 2, you get pruned. Ouch, like that's painful. You get pruned so that you can bear more fruit. And so it's worth saying this just as we talk about the theological reality for life as a Christian. Some of you here right now are or have been going through hard times or disappointing times, and you're exhausted, and you're, and you're weary, and sometimes in the thick of it, or even sometime after, you think to yourself, what's the whole point of this? Like, God, you must have a good reason for this, but I don't see it. What, I can't make sense of this. There has to be a reason for why this is happening, and I don't know why. And you know what? We long for explanations. We live in a time where we want an explanation for everything. We're not promised an explanation about like the nitty-gritty why this thing is happening. But what you can be comforted in is the fact that you're being pruned. Like, what's God up to? What's he trying to do in you? What's he trying to achieve in you? We don't always know exactly what character formation's occurring, but bottom of the line, inescapable reality, you're being pruned. God is trying to strengthen you. God is trying to make you depend on him more so that you bear more fruit. So if you're in a hard spot right now, it's not a waste. It's never a waste. If you're in the vine, it's never, ever a waste because God's pruning you so that you bear more fruit. That's the way he validates that you're genuinely connected to him. So when it comes to life in Christ, it's not like maybe we'll make it. Maybe we'll make it. We have the comfort here that we will never be lost because God the Father, the vine dresser, applies his pruning and persevering hand to us. Those hardships and those difficulties and disappointments that you're going through, that's what God appoints for you to cause you to keep going and persevere. Like you remember in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, I have this thorn in the flesh. Three times I've prayed that God would take it from me. He says, no because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So God causes us to persevere by putting us in positions of weakness and pruning us so we bear more fruit, and it's validating to us and the world that you are actually in the vine. So, God always finishes what he starts. If he's grafted you into the vine, he's going to keep you in the vine by pruning. Look at what verse 3 says here. He says, already, like already you are clean. He's speaking to the disciples. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So you might read verse 3 there, and you might think to yourself, this shift from pruning to cleaning. I'm pruning you, but you're already clean. It might not connect for you. 
You might think it's strange, but uh, in the Greek, in the original language, it's actually a play on words. The word for prune is katharoi. The word for clean, for clean is kathare. So they, say, they share the same origin. Here's what Jesus is doing here in this, in this verse. He sort of steps out of the metaphor for just a moment so that we don't miss the point. Branches that bear fruit and are pruned and produce fruit are those that are already claimed and consecrated to him. Already you are clean. Already you are set apart. Already you are chosen. So God finishes what he has started. You're already clean and set apart. I'm going to prune you so you continue to bear more fruit. I'm going to cause you to persevere. So the whole picture here is that some think they are connected to the vine, but they show no signs of life. And those who are really connected to the vine will grow in fruitfulness at an increasing rate over the course of their life. It's long. It's slow, it's sometimes hard, but it is genuine. You remember the, in the parable of the soil that I just mentioned a little bit ago in Matthew 13, we have those first three soils that don't bear fruit, that don't, that don't uh, produce anything. But that good soil, the good soil that the seed of the word lands on, you know what happens? You remember what happens? It takes a little bit of time. It's not overnight, it's not instantaneous, it's slow, hard growth, but over the course of time, it bears a harvest, 30, 60, 100-fold. So, what's the difference, do you think, between those who bear fruit and last versus those who do not and are taken away? If, you're, if you were to answer that question, what is the difference between those who last and those who don't, who are genuine and who prove themselves to not be genuine? Verses 4 through 6 tell us. Read with me. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Over and over, I think five separate times here in verses 4 through 6, you see the word abide abide, abide repeatedly. That's the difference between those who make it and those who don't, is abiding. Abiding. Now, from a theological view, we who bear fruit are already clean, we're elected, we're predestined, we're chosen by God, but from a ground level, okay, from a day-to-day ground level that's totally compatible with God's sovereignty, we who bear fruit and persevere are those who willfully willfully abide in the vine of Jesus. That's the difference. Willful abiding. So what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide? Uh, Abide is uh, meno in the Greek. The verb is in the aorist tense. And the only reason I mention that is because the aorist tense is not focused on like one action you make at one point in time. The aorist tense is an action with a continuation. It's like an indefinite action. So abiding, it's not one thing you do once. It's, not, it's less of an action and more of a posture. Less of an action and more of a commitment or a lifestyle. A state of being, if you will. So here, here's how I would just uh, tell you what, what it means to abide. To abide is to open my mind, my spirit, my body to Jesus so that I can receive all that he has and all who he is, knowing that he has opened himself to me completely and received me already. Abide in me and I in you. That language, it means Jesus, I'm totally vulnerable to you. I'm totally open to you. You remember those people who who didn't last because something else was more central to them? The word of God could not take root in them and eventually push them away. To abide is the willful decision to make Jesus and his words and his vision for life central to my being and my life and be totally open and transparent to Jesus on that. No limitations, no excuses. Totally comforted in the knowledge and the fact that Jesus has already made himself completely available and open to me. So it's mutual reciprocity. It's a porousness to one another, openness to one another. It means my life is his and his life is mine. I am his and he is mine. That's what it means to abide. And the difference will be you bear fruit. 
that you have a life that gives evidence that you are in fellowship with God himself, that you are empowered with the very resurrection power that was applied to Jesus' body. That lives in you. You'll never be the same. So abide in Jesus and him in us. That's our life from here on out as we abide in him for those, uh, for those of us who are branches in the vine. You know, I've had, I'm sure like you, so many friends from my high school graduating class, so many friends from college who back then in those times were just on fire for God, who, who wouldn't miss church, who wouldn't miss a chapel, who wouldn't miss a devotion. They were on fire, resolute, but now, you know, a long time later, they're just the opposite direction. Yeah, I, like I used to work at BCM. So when I used to disciple midshipmen, you know, there would be midshipmen I started discipling their freshman year, and by their first year, by the last, by their last year, they were just completely in the opposite direction. You, you, you know people like that, and you see that happen over the course of your life, and you think to yourself, what happened there? What happened? It started off right, but now they're nowhere to be found. And the difference is <laughs> it's possible to be available to Jesus superficially. It's possible to be integrated into Jesus to a very shallow level. Not letting him into the center of your life. Not letting him into the center of your being. Not building your life around him and his claims. I'll tell you, when the time comes to choose between Jesus and the other thing that's central to you, that you're holding out, what do you think is going to happen? What's going to win out? It's the thing that's always central to your life, that your life orbits around. And so if you're not vigilant about letting Jesus expulse your idols, replace what you really actually want and would hold against God if he didn't give you, if you're not vigilant about letting Jesus in deeply, then you are in a very precarious place. And so, hey, like teenagers here, Kids here with your parents right now, like you, you are here with your family, but you have an independent choice to make that you must make for yourself. Are you going to abide in the vine? Are, is Jesus going to be central to your life? It can't be your parents' decision for you. It can't be the culture that you've been brought up and it has to be a willful decision that you make on your own. First Peter 1, 2 Peter 1.10 says, Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm. Confirm your calling. Confirm your election. How do we do that? Be sure Jesus and his words are central to your life. And so listen, if you're here and, and you don't care about the things of God, or let me say it this way, if you're here, and I want you to examine yourself for a moment, examine your life for a moment. If it came out tomorrow that just like the resurrection was totally not true. That Christianity was proven tomorrow to be without a shadow of a doubt, false. If that happened, it won't. If that happened, would your life look any different? Would that change the makeup, the shape, the external um, um, features of your life at all? Or if it, found, if it was found out that Christianity wasn't true at all tomorrow, would that wreck your life? <laughs> like, would that change everything for you? Would your life have to be completely reshuffled because you've been in it so deep? So there's a difference between those who make it and don't. And the difference is abiding. Him and I, I and him, I'm open to him because he's open to me. So that's the metaphor, okay? Life in Christ, that's the metaphor. It communicates the basic truth of what it means to be united to Jesus. There must be fruit. Now, we move from metaphor to literal, metaphor to day-to-day, -day, from analogy to reality. So listen here, I want to I I introduce this next section carefully. You could say that this next unit of text is how the metaphor comes to life. It's how the theological becomes actual. So for those of us who are Christians, who've been in church for a long time, this is going to be maybe a new thought for you or a challenging thought to you, and I mean it to be challenging and purposeful that way. Theology is a beginning, not an end, right? Uh, think about theology like the rules to a sports game. Theology is the rules, but the experience of life in God is the game. 
spirituality, Christian spirituality, communing and fellowshipping with God, that's the sport, that's the game. Theology sets the rules, but that's not the game. You can't confuse the two. Life in Jesus, encountering Him in real personal way, that's the game of life. So said another way, in your journey with Jesus, theology, it sets the expectations, but it will not fulfill them. Spiritual practices will. Communing with Jesus will. So do you want to experience spiritually what is true of you theologically? Then you must have a spiritual relationship with Jesus, not just a theological one. So with theology in place, we must abide in the vine to bear fruit. With that theology in place, now let's explore the metaphor like with, along with Jesus and talk about the experience of life in Christ. So first, what does it mean to abide? It means to be in the Word and to be in prayer. Okay? Verses 7 through 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So do you, want to see, uh, so do you see how this is an expansion of what we've already covered? Jesus has previously said, abide in me and I in you. And now that's expanded to mean, read your Bible. How do we abide in Jesus? Read our Bible. Then he says, you're to bear fruit. What's the fruit here in verses 7 through 8? It's successful prayer life. It's a prayer life that is characterized by yes, by answered prayer. Abide in me, read your Bibles, and pray, and bear fruit answered prayer. So listen carefully here, okay? To read the Bible and not pray, there's a chance that that could actually be unhelpful to you. And to pray and neglect your Bible might be misguided, okay? Let me explain. To read the Bible and not pray might be unhelpful because it's possible to stuff your head with knowledge and never have it affect your heart. This happens all the time. At first, when you become a Christian, the Bible comes alive and you devour it. But after a while, if all you do is just read, and all you have is head knowledge, and that knowledge never plumbs the depths of your heart, then you can become self-righteous and arrogant. And so the doctrine that once was the ground of your humility before God can become the platform of your arrogance before others. Now, if you pray without Scripture, apart from reading Scripture, you can be misguided because it's possible to pray with your heart, which is often deceived, self-deceived, and forget that God first wants us to understand what to pray with our heads before we pray with our hearts. So we need both. It felt a Christianity that is life in the vine, experiencing Jesus, him and I, I and me. It's scripture and prayer together that comes in the form of bare fruit and answer prayer. So your goal should be to take in the word and breathe out the word in prayer. This should be the normal rhythm of our Christian life, taking in the word and breathing out the word in prayer. There's two reasons for this, why you have to do this, why you should set this as your goal. First, because Jesus promises to answer our prayers. If we read scripture, take in scripture, let it shape our minds, let it settle into our hearts, and then we breathe it out in prayer. That's the kind of prayer life that's responded to by God with a yes. He loves to answer his own will. When you let the will of God saturate your imagination so that it's on the tip of your tongue, God loves to answer those prayers. And Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in my words, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. Let it rip. What an incredible promise. We mentioned, we talked about prayer several weeks ago. You know, in the last several decades, I am thankful for our return to sound doctrine in the church, this emphasis upon knowing doctrine. But one area that we are anemic is prayer. We don't understand prayer. And Jesus is saying here, I want to answer your prayer. That's actually a validation that you're in me. The fruit that gives evidence that you are a child of God is that you have answered prayer all throughout your life. 
But how does that happen? It's conditional. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. This is a promise. It's a powerful promise. And so look, if you are a branch in the vine, this is the fruit that you should expect to see answered prayer. If you're a child of God, this is your birthright, answered prayer. If you want an observable life marked by answered prayer, your hidden life must be marked by abiding in the word. Let me ask you a series of questions here. How would you like to see answered prayer in your life? How would you like to move out into life confident and expectant that God is for you and that he is with you, that God hears you? How would you like the rest of your life to testify to everyone around you that God is real? And how would you like your heart reassured that you are God's and he is yours? That's what verse 8 says, that the Father is glorified when we bear this kind of fruit because it proves that we are his disciples. And so this is an awesome promise for us to claim. Are you claiming it? Do you believe this? That if you are willing to make whatever sacrifice is necessary to abide in him so his word abides in you and you pray the word, if you are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do that, at, over the course of time, what's going to happen? Answer prayer. And moving out into the world, expectant for God to move. That's clear, okay? This is a promise for us. I want to talk about one other reason why it's so important to have a Christian life, a Christian spirituality that's marked by taking in the word and breathing out prayer. Why this is so, so important for us. It's because abiding in Jesus' words and praying them is the practice that makes us experience our life in him. This scripture and prayer is what makes the metaphor reality. And so you see over and over and again this passage, like we've said, the word, the phrase, in me. You're in me. You're in me. And that should remind you of Colossians 3.3, where we're told this incredible statement where Jesus says, or Paul says, that your life... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that where Christ is and where the Father is and how they relate to one another, gazing into one another, rejoicing over one another, that nexus point between them, that's where your life is located. Like you can tap into that. You can be connected and rooted into that and draw from that. That can be your everyday life, but... That happens how? By taking in the word and breathing out the word. A relationship with Jesus is it, it's an experience. Union with Jesus, it's more than a theological idea. And prayer is where it becomes real. Prayer is where the ideas of the word descend into our heart. 2 Peter 1 says this incredible statement in verse 4 that we are partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever read that verse before? We are partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we share God's essence, but it means that... It, here's, actually, here's what Jonathan Edwards says. He says this about, about this verse. He says this means that God's fullness, His beauty and happiness is available to us according to the measure and capacity of every creature. God's fullness, that is his beauty and happiness, is available to us according to the measure and capacity of every creature. We can encounter the awesome living God and have his happiness as our own. And the more we read the word of God and understand him, the larger our capacity is to take him in. And prayer is how we drive the fullness of the awesome living God into our being so that his happiness becomes our happiness. When we read scripture, our heart is enlarged as our mind is informed. And then prayer is how we take these spiritual realities and drive them all the way down into the depths of our hearts and fill up to full capacity our enlarged hearts. This is life in Christ. It's an experience. It's not just an idea. And so I wonder, have you ever had an encounter with God? 
an experience with God where he like, where you knew he was real, where he revealed himself to your heart. A few months ago, early in the morning, I was in the scripture, I was praying, I set aside time early in the morning to be with the Lord, and it was, it was the salient moment where it's, there was a stillness and there was like nothing else in the world at that, at that moment. And it was just me and God, my heart open to his, exposed to him, and his heart exposed to me. And there was nothing else going on. And it was an amazing experience. It's like scripture just bubbled up from me and poured out of, my, out of my mouth as I prayed to him. It's like Jesus promises those rivers of living water that are surging in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, it's like those rivers of life were bubbling up in me and coming out of my mouth in prayer and praying his word back to him. And it was, the, it was a profound experience. I hope you have those kinds of times with God, those kinds of experiences with God that leave an indelible mark on you, that persuade your heart that this is all real. Like this isn't just abstract ideas and mythology, but like the awesome living God has made his home in your heart and is near to you. He is near to you. And he loves you. And he wants you. And the way that you press into that statement, press into that reality, is by taking in his word, understanding who he is, enlarging the capacity of your heart then, and then filling your heart with his love through prayer. So we, gotta, we have to abide in him, his word abide in us, and ask whatever we wish, and it'll be done for us. An awesome promise to bear fruit. This is life in Christ. This is what it looks like. Second way that we have this life in Christ, this felt experience of life in Christ, is obedience and love. Verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So, see again, this is an expansion of the metaphor. Previously, Jesus has said, abide in me, now that's expanded to mean, obey my commandments, keep my commandments. And the fruit that he talks about that we will, that will come from our life for those who abide in the vine is what? Knowing the love of the Father, knowing the love of the Son, felt love of Jesus. So abide, what does that mean? Obey. <laughs> What's the fruit? Knowing his love, his felt love in our hearts. So let's understand this love first, because this is incredible. Verse 9, Jesus says, as, underline that word, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Well, the question here, obviously, is how has the Father loved the Son? Like, what's that love like? What's that like at all? John 17, 24, Jesus describes it like this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying his splendor and his radiance from eternity past, that, that happens because the Father has delighted in him and celebrated him and loved him. Another way to say that is, the Father has attributed weight to the Son because He loves Him, because He loves Him. This is love at its most intense point when time just stops and everything in your heart and body just surges out toward the beloved, towards the object of your love. Now the question here is, so you can have that love. That, that love, that weight of glory kind of love can be in you and you can feel and experience, but how? What's the portal or the pathway to that love? Verse 10, it's obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So, obedience is the pathway to feeling God's love. Think about that. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, this language, it doesn't mean that we earn Jesus' love. In fact, if you're a Christian, God has loved you before you were ever born. But experientially, like subjectively, obedience is how we keep the felt love of Jesus. 
Obedience is the language of love. And so Jesus gives himself as an example there in verse 10. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in his love. Abide in, abide in me. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus' obedience kept him as the apple of the Father's eye. Earlier in John 8, Jesus says this, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So what's Jesus saying here? That because Jesus perfectly obeyed, always kept the Father's will, walked stride in stride with God throughout life, he was always the direct target of the Father's love. And so our obedience walking stride for stride with Jesus throughout life, trusting Him, choosing His way over our way, obeying Him rather than, rather than drifting for our own you know, individualistic, autonomous desires. Like Stride for stride with Jesus throughout life is what keeps us in the center of the target of His love. It's what keeps us near Him. We'll never be abandoned. We'll never be not loved by Jesus. But it's possible to harden your heart. It's possible to sin and fill your life with shame and guilt and remorse and regret so that what happens? You feel distanced from God. You feel cold towards Him. And Jesus is giving us a promise here that if you walk stride for stride with me and trust me and my ways, you will always be underneath my love, the outpouring of my love. So in our relationship with Jesus, our obedience keeps us as the direct target of the poured out love, of his poured out love, and disobedience distances us. George Whitfield, one of the, uh, the leaders of the First Great Awakening, walking stride for stride with Jesus, serving him, trusting him, living a life for him, surrendering himself to him constantly, to Jesus constantly. And he writes in his, in his memoir that there was an instance where he was laying in bed and all of a sudden he just felt the love of God being poured into his heart. We're talking about experiencing God, like a Christianity that's not just theological abstract ideas, but an encounter with God. George Whitfield says the love of God, the love of Jesus, was being poured into his heart for hours, and it was so overwhelming that he had to ask God to stop. That kind of fellowship with God, that kind of connection with God is real and can happen, but how? When we live a life consecrated to Him when we live a life directly underneath the bullseye of his love, when we begin to, to drift, when we cease trusting him, we move and drift closer away from the bullseye of his love. So Jesus wants us to be near him, wants us to know his felt love. That's the fruit of our life. That's the fruit of the Christian life, that you are loved by God and you know it and you've experienced it. So if you want this to be true of you, listen to what James, Jesus' little brother, says in James chapter 4. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Like God is jealous for you. So he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So if you want to be near God, if you want to be porous to his love, capable of receiving and feeling his love, then you must keep his commandments, which means humbling yourself before him, trusting him, not your own understanding, but all your ways, trusting him, walking stride for stride with him. So the metaphor, it's a reality. Like we can have a living dynamic relationship with Jesus. And now he finishes it in verse 11. He brings all of it together in one word here. 
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. If we were to sum up the Christian life, life in Christ, union with him in one word, Jesus says it's joy, fullness of joy, joy in you, full joy. Now joy, okay, it's not an emotion. I mean, sometimes it feels good, but joy is not an emotional reality or experience because you can be unhappy and be joyful. You can be sick and be joyful, sad and be joyful, in pain and be joyful. The reason you can be full of joy, even when it's hard, is because joy is a state of being. It's an attitude that is otherworldly. And so if you want a great picture of life of joy, sometimes when we talk about these ideas, it's easier to see a life that captures this than just explain it. If you want to know what joy looks like, look at Paul, Paul's life. Like in the book of Philippians, he says, he says these things. Listen here. He's on house arrest. He can't do ministry anymore. He's completely limited in his freedom. And in his absence, people are preaching for their own platform. They're filling the void but doing it for their own glory. And you know what Paul says? Awesome. This is awesome. Great. As long as the gospel is being preached, in that I rejoice. He's looking towards death. He's not sure if he's going to make it out of the situation. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Kill me? Great. I get what I've always wanted. I don't die? Great. I'm going to keep living for Christ. You can't defeat me? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He's pastoring this church in Philippi. They're experiencing <clears throat> dysfunction. He writes, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm like pouring myself out for you, church in Philippi. And he says, in that I rejoice. I'm having a great time doing it. He dresses some of these dissenter, dissenters by name. In chapter four, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's like no matter what, you cannot bring Paul down. It's hard. It's difficult. He certainly went through some hard stuff, but you just cannot cause him to despair because he's full of joy. The fullness of joy that Jesus has promised him, Paul knows. Paul lives in. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. Why? Because his life was hidden in Christ in God. He knew the living, powerful God. Another person who has left a mark on me as I've read his story is Hudson Taylor. I've talked about him a lot recently. His son, Frederick Taylor, wrote about his father, uh, wrote a biography about his father. And here's what his son writes about Hudson Taylor. Talk about joy. This epitome of the Christian life, life in Jesus. Here's what it looks like to be abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit. Abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit. Here's what he writes about his dad. Here was a man almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters. Any one of them might contain news of death, of lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble. Yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resource. And, he, and this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no word to describe it save the scriptural expression, in God. Hudson Taylor was in God all the time and God in him. It was that true abiding of John chapter 15. This is our birthright. This can be what we know routinely, not just to relate to God in our heads, not just to live according to doctrinal formulas, although those are really important, but to go beyond them and to experience the living, powerful God, Him in us, us in Him. His peace in us, His love in us, His joy in us, because we are in Him. Scripture, prayer, 
trusting obedience. This is the pathway to joy in him, fullness of joy in him. And so here's my one question I would just leave you with today. My one question I'll leave you to wrestle with today. Ask yourself, or ask God this, God, if you are real and your word is true, can I have all that you are and all that you have? Would you, would you just leave here thinking that, praying that, desiring that, crying out to God for that? God, if you are real, and if all that you say here is true, that this can actually be my life, can I please, in Jesus' name, for your glory, have all that you are and have all that you have? Would you do that? Would you leave here having that question swirling in your heart? He promises to answer prayer. He promises. So pray. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we ask that we can have all that you have and all that you are. We want life in you. We want to press into you, God, and have a living, dynamic relationship with you because you are living and dynamic. So, Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have stopped short and settled for possibly an intellectual, merely intellectual relationship with you. Or when we have stopped short and not given ourselves fully to you, not surrendered to you, not put you first and sought you first. Lord, we ask that you'd come to us, that you'd help us, that this, you jealously yearn over us. And so, Lord, we want to humble ourselves to you and draw near to you because you say you'll draw near to us. So we cleanse ourselves. God, we trust you and walk with you stride for stride. We ask, God, that you draw near to us. Make yourself real to us. Pour your love into our heart. Let us know your joy, the fullness of your joy. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.